0: we must all remember the lessons of the past as a guide for the management of the present and the planning for the future. I am the son of sugar workers who hasn't forgotten his roots. Welcome to the Pepper Pot. as alaikum and welcome to the Pepper Pot. Allegories are stories that hold deep and profound messages about life and the world around us. One of the most famous allegories is Plato's Allegory of the Cave. The story begins with a group of prisoners chained to a wall inside a small, dark cave, where they can only see shadows cast by a fire behind them. Their reality is based solely on these shadows, the sound of the fire, and each other until one day, a prisoner is freed. He decides to leave, and soon discovers that there is a world beyond the cave, and that the shadows are just a reflection of the real objects that exist outside. When he returns to the cave to share his knowledge with the others, they reject his ideas, because they can't comprehend a reality beyond the shadows that they've known all their lives. You see, the allegory of the cave explores the clash between knowledge and belief, and sheds light on the fear that arises when we explore the unknown. You see, I was confident growing up that I knew exactly what it means to be Guyanese. I now realize that for years, I allowed others to tell me what my culture and heritage means rather than experience it for myself. You could say, in one way or another, that I was simply watching the shadows pass me by. It wasn't until much later in life that I started to see our culture was about so much more than the way we speak, the food we eat, how much we can drink, how good we can dance, or the music that we listen to. But at the same time, I realized that my understanding of what it means to be Guyanese differed in many ways from other people in my community. I am the product of working class parents who valued education above all else, an altar tucked away into the most unsuspecting corners of our home and a grand story that never seemed to reach the light of day. As I pushed further into my own research, I was amazed by what I had learned about who I am and where I come from. It was an awakening to the realities of my bloodline and an acknowledgement that many of my experiences are informed by the legacies of indentureship, survival, resilience, and of course, my ancestors. One of the first stories that I came across in my research begins on August 18th, 1823. On that day, a rebellion broke out in the British colony of demerara Sequibo among African slaves who believed that they had been granted rights by the British Parliament that Governor John Murray and plantation owners were withholding. The leaders were Jack Gladstone, Chief Cooper on Plantation Success, and his father, Quamina Gladstone, a deacon of Bethel Chapel on Plantation Le Resouvenir and head carpenter of Plantation Success. In the early stages of planning, Quamina objected to the use of violence and suggested that the slaves go on strike. However, Within 24 hours, the rebellion had spread as far east as Mahaika and as far west as Georgetown. Many participants locked up their managers and overseers and searched their homes for weapons and ammunition. In response, Governor Murray declared martial law and deployed troops and civilian militiamen to restore order. Now, while the rebellion only lasted two days, it was the largest slave revolt in British Guyana history and one of the largest in the Caribbean. According to some estimates, out of 75,000 slaves, 13,000 across 37 plantations took part. In the end, roughly 200 slaves lost their lives. Jack Gladstone was deported to the British colony of St. Lucia for his part. Kwamana went on the run shortly after the rebellion, but was captured and killed behind Chateau Margot Plantation on September 16, 1823. Today, Kwamana is actually considered a national hero in Guyana with streets in Georgetown and the village of Bedford Walkden on the east coast of the Demerara named after him. Now, while the goal of the rebellion was to bring about emancipation, the British didn't end slavery in the colonies until years later. The rebellion did, however, lead to several changes in the treatment of slaves, such as the introduction of standardized work hours. It even caught the interest of British abolitionists, who later incorporated the revolt into their anti-slavery campaign. In fact, By 1833, British Guyana had implemented the Apprentice System, in which slaves worked for their masters for four to six years before gaining complete freedom. In exchange, former slave owners received over 20 million pounds as compensation. By 1838, the Apprentice System was entirely abolished in British Guyana, resulting in many Africans leaving their plantations to establish their own villages and pursue other labor opportunities. Meanwhile, Those that remained took advantage of the increase in their bargaining power and demanded higher wages and refused to work long hours. In response, the British turned to indentureship, a system in which indentured laborers were recruited and brought to the Caribbean to work on the plantations so that they could continue producing the valuable commodities that drove the region's rich economy. They engaged in a series of campaigns to distance this new system as far away from slavery as possible. In fact, As one poster advertised in Canton China reads, in part, there is no slavery wherever the British flag flies. The law is the same to rich and poor. Now while indentureship differs from slavery in many aspects, we cannot ignore the striking similarities. Indentured laborers toiled away on the same plantations, lived in the same quarters, and were transported on boats of similar conditions to slave ships. They received poor treatment upon their arrival. They were beaten, Raped, and denied opportunities to attend school and practice their religion. The key difference, however, is that indentured laborers were bound to their employers through the indentured contract. Now, despite the similarities and differences between these two systems, indentured laborers from Germany, Portugal, China, Indonesia, and elsewhere were loaded onto boats and shipped to plantations in British Guyana, Suriname, Trinidad, Jamaica, Guadeloupe, South Africa, Mauritius, and Fiji. However, according to Parbati Ramsaran, a professor in humanities at York University in Toronto, due to the strenuous manual work demanded by planters, many of these laborers proved unsuitable. A suitable labor force was cheap, accessible, and could be easily controlled. With that in mind, planters turned to Britain's other colony, India, as a source of labor. In particular, the provinces of Orissa, Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, Madras, and Calcutta. You know, being a passionate advocate for the rich and complex history of my community, I have embarked on a mission to create a podcast that is wholly devoted to telling our stories, no matter how hard they may be to hear. One such story that has had a profound impact on me is the Gladstone Cooley Experiment. This is a topic that has left me feeling both heartbroken and empowered. It tells the tale of a time in our history that was fraught with unimaginable violence and hardship. Yet It's also a story that illuminates the indomitable spirit of resilience, perseverance, and hope that has always defined our people. You see, Sir John Gladstone was a prominent Liverpool merchant, member of Parliament, and father of future Prime Minister William Gladstone. His net worth at the time of his death was estimated to be around £600,000, a large portion of which came from his compensation after being forced to emancipate nearly 2,000 slaves in British Guyana and Jamaica. His seven estates in British Guyana include some familiar names. Success, Wales, Walters Delight, Covindine, Hampton Court, Vreden Hope, and Vredenstein. You see, when the apprentice system was abolished, Gladstone found that the newly freed slaves were challenging to manage, and he was concerned that they would eventually leave his estates. In response, he undertook to bring Indian laborers to work on his estates and others in the area. To make this plan a reality, Gladstone lobbied the British government and eventually received their approval. He then partnered with his friend and fellow absentee planter, John Moss, to implement the scheme. Together, they engaged the services of the transportation company, Messrs Jalanders, Arbuthnot and Co., to handle the logistics of transporting the Indian laborers. Shortly thereafter, on May 5, 1838, the Whitby and Hesperus arrived in Georgetown, Demerara, from Calcutta. Eighteen out of the 414 Indians on board those ships died. Those who survived faced numerous challenges upon arrival, including poor living conditions, physical and sexual assault, and a high mortality rate from tropical diseases like malaria and dysentery. But things quickly got out of hand. In fact, within the first 18 months, 67 deaths were recorded. One report published in the British Emancipator on January 9th, 1839, reads, in part, I see the British public have been deceived with the idea that the coolies are doing well. Such is not the fact. The poor, friendless creatures are miserably treated. At least I can speak confidently of the plantation Bellevue. On this estate, they have made two attempts to escape. Numerous reports showed that flogging and rubbing salt in the wounds was a common technique used by the Gladstone overseers to punish and exert control over the coolies. Some attempted to run away from their estates, believing that they could escape over land back to Calcutta. But all they found was miles of thick jungle and more broken dreams. At the end of the Gladstone experiment, 236 Indian laborers chose to return to India. Shortly after, Colonial Secretary Lord John Russell suspended the Indian indenture scheme to British Guyana, stating, I am not prepared to encounter the responsibility of a measure which may lead to a dreadful loss of life on the one hand, or, on the other, to a new system of slavery. However, this sentiment would quickly fade, as in 1845, the indentureship scheme resumed following extensive lobbying and an urgent need for cheap plantation labor.
1: Bahadur writes in her now infamous book, Coolie Woman, The Odyssey of Indenture, that the British didn't recruit coolies. Instead, they made coolies. Indentureship took generations of gardeners and goldsmiths and leathermakers and boatmen and soldiers and priests and turned them all into an unrecognizable, degraded mass of plantation laborers without caste or family. For the British and many other colonial powers, coolies were merely an ill-rice-fed, ague-suffering animal.
0: But between 1834 and 1917, more than one million coolies were taken across the Kalapani, or Blackwater, to the plantations of Malaya, Mauritius, Fiji, Trinidad, British Guyana, Jamaica, and British Honduras. They typically contracted to work for four to six years in exchange for their passage. And by all accounts, This was the largest mass migration of people in the 19th century. You see, the journey from India to the Caribbean was harrowing. One scholar writes that a lack of food was a major issue. Ventilation was extremely poor, there were frequent outbreaks of disease, and there were instances of people jumping overboard to escape the terrible conditions on these ships. As one might guess, not everyone survived the trip across the Kalapani. Seasickness afflicted most. A majority aboard fell ill with mumps, measles, dysentery, hookworm, or fever. The ache for home was so sharp for some that one person wrote, I know that many people die from nostalgia, pure and simple. The excitement of the newness of everything keeps them up for a time, but soon dies away and is followed by depression when they realize what they've done. And when they arrived in the Caribbean, they were met with a hostile and unfamiliar environment. Friends and families were separated almost immediately, scattered throughout the various plantations of this unfamiliar land. The work was brutal and exploitative, and many were forced to work long hours for low wages. But at the end of their contract, some returned to India, while others moved on to other regions in the Caribbean. But returning to India proved difficult, despite the fact that many indentured contracts guaranteed a free return passage to India after five years of work the reality is that many were forced to wait months after their contracts ended before they received their return passage. For example, on January 30th, 1843, a group of indentured Indians from the Anna Regina Plantation in Essequibo descended on the headquarters of the Essequibo Sheriff, M. L. Fowler. They exclaimed, We want to go back to our country. We don't want to wait. We want to be sent immediately to our country according to our agreement when we left home. By 1869, colonial governments across the Caribbean offered those who completed their contracts land or money in lieu of a return passage to India. By 1898, ex-indentured men in Guyana had to pay for half of their tickets home and women one-third. For those that made the journey back across the Kalapani, a new, more challenging frontier awaited them. As Gayatri Bahadur writes in Koli Woman, earlier waves had failed to find their way back into the fold of their villages. In some cases, they literally couldn't find the villages. Floods along the Ganges had washed them away. A few couldn't remember the way back to their villages, while others, outcast before leaving India, effectively had no homes to try to reclaim. But even if returnees located their villages, and even if they paid priests the extravagant sums demanded to restore them to caste, they still faced rejection by the clans and kin. Hundreds reported that they could not touch the village well, or share in smoking a hookah or consider marrying their sons and daughters to anyone without the specter of pollution being raised. Their time overseas had turned them into a people apart, branded islanders. It had transformed them into a social problem.
1: After returning to India, many set up makeshift shacks along the banks of the Huli River in hopes that another ship would come to take them back to the colonies. In total, only about one-quarter of indentured Indians taken to the Caribbean returned to India. Of those, a vast majority returned to the sugar plantations from which they escaped by paying their own passage or signing new indentured contracts. Those who declined the return passage found it difficult to leave the plantation and were often forced to renew their contracts and remain indentured laborers for extended periods. The history of Indian indentured labor is one of migration, colonial violence, trauma, and survival. It is a history that has forced us to live on the margins, interrupted, apologetic, silent, and indentured. And it is a history that affects many of us to this day.
0: On January 6, 1977, 22-year-old Indal Sami Narayan made his way to the Victoria Park subway station in Toronto after his shift at a tavern just a short distance away. Suddenly, three white men called out to him, Hey, Paki! Sami stopped and thought for a second and replied that he was not from Pakistan, having immigrated to Toronto from Guyana only four years earlier. It was then that the men made their move they knocked Sammy to the ground and kicked him in the back and legs while others watched from a distance. He called out for help as he gasped for air, but no one came to his rescue. He was forced to lay on his stomach and suffer the attack alone. Sammy was later taken to Scarborough General Hospital, where he was treated for bruises and cuts to his head and thigh. I didn't try to fight back. I'm not a fighter. I just tried to protect myself, Sammy told the Globe and Mail. Shockingly, Sammy's greatest concern was that the incident would embarrass and bring shame to his family back home in Guyana. You see, at the time, this was the third racially motivated attack on Toronto public transit in a week, and the public demanded action. But surprisingly, the Toronto police turned Sammy over to immigration authorities after he revealed that he was not a landed immigrant. He was instructed to check in with an immigration officer and the police every Monday, and that he would get a decision on his immigration status only after the close of his case. You see, at the time, no one knew whether Sammy faced deportation. While the police later arrested and charged Donald Creighton and Harold Reynolds, both 18-year-old residents of Scarborough, with assault, Sammy would never get his day in court. You see, Edmonton police found Sammy dead in a rooming house on March 24, 1977, just a few months after the attack. Sammy had hung himself. In the weeks leading up to his death, Sami wrote to his parents that he was unhappy with Canada and planned to take his life. Sami's suicide drew the attention of the local Indian community to Canada's harsh immigration laws and the growing racist violence in its larger cities. In the decades that followed, my people faced unimaginable racism and bigotry in addition to social and political disenfranchisement. Gayatra Bahadur writes in Koli Woman, that one shilling was the value of an indentured laborer's life. It was the amount paid to indentured men for a day's work and how much the government docked from the pay of ship surgeons whenever a coolie died during the crossing. Forged by suffering, created through destruction. I wonder what Sammy would think. I wonder how much his life was worth. Canva on the dark waters represents the light that our ancestors carried inside of them across the Kalapani. That light is what allowed them to survive their indentureship. You see, no one knew what awaited them when they boarded those ships to the Caribbean. Until then, many spent months inside of immigration depots where they were starved, beaten, and stripped of their humanity. But they persevered in the face of hardship, and I have come to appreciate that it is because of the light inside each and every one of them that we have been able to survive as a people. You see, that light comes in many shapes and forms. For some, that light came in the form of a faith, spread out across the pages of the Ramayana, Qur'an, or Bible. For others, that light came in the form of determination to set the foundation for what could one day be a brighter future. But no matter which way you look at it, the light inside each soul that came on those ships has ensured that our grand story continues. As we come to a close, we want to take a moment to express our sincere appreciation for the support from all of our listeners. Now, my name is Ryan Navinja Ramdin, and together with my partner, the artist Sarasati Ramprashad, we bring to you the Peppa Pot.
1: In this podcast, we explore the legacy of Indo Caribbean people and the survivors of Indian indentureship. As children of the Guyanese diaspora, we are paying homage to our ancestral roots through this body of creative work.
0: So, what can you expect from the Peppa Pot? Well, join us on Sundays as Sarah Saty and I unpack the untold history of Guyana through narrative storytelling in Season 1. We share the story of Indian indentureship, discuss our experiences as first-generation Guyanese Canadians, and unapologetically confront some of the most pressing issues facing the Indo-Guyanese community.
1: As newcomers to the podcasting world, we're eager to hear your thoughts. What did you like about this episode? What do you want to hear more of? Your feedback is invaluable to us, so don't hesitate to shoot us an email at thepeppapot at gmail.com. Your encouragement helps us grow and learn more about you, our audience.
0: And for those of you who just can't get enough of our grand story, we encourage you to check out the resources listed in the description below. Who knows what stories and discoveries await you?
1: Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook at The Peppapot Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning into this episode and we'll see you again on the Peppa Pot next Sunday.